So I want to start getting back towards anger because that was a good question. But yes, this maybe relates a little bit. I had a question about well, what happens is when I was getting ready to come here, my neighbors started blasting their music and it was really loud. And I started to get really angry because it was like painfully loud. And then came the thought, oh, that's what I mean, mindful of this. And then I felt like, oh, it's just the only thing I have to put up with, you know? It felt like it was like saying, oh, you just have to put up with this stuff. And it was like this feeling of like angeriness and helplessness and like, you know, like, I don't know, the religion I brought up, it was like, offer it up, you know, <laughs> and that kind of a thing. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit maybe about the difference between being mindful and putting up with something. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. Okay, I think that that fits in with talking about anger. Uh, let me do kind of a preamble to the whole thing. Let's just sort of segue from what is Buddhism into this. Uh, the situation that we find ourselves in on a daily basis is between the time we get up in the morning and the time we go to sleep at night, we have a lot of uh, unpleasant experiences during the day. And we can look at those experiences and ask ourselves, is there a way that that could not have happened? And you described an, un- uh, you, you described an experience which was unpleasant, right? Mm-hmm. When we closely examine all of the experiences that we have uh, that are unpleasant in one way or another, we'll begin to discern certain consistencies in those. And that's that the, the unhappiness, the unpleasantness that we experience is our own mind's reaction to what has happened. It's not inherent in the thing that's happening. Uh, Physical pain is inherent in the event that happens that produces the pain. But even in the case of physical pain, the amount of suffering that we experience or unpleasantness or unhappiness that we experience as a result of the physical pain is a variable and it varies according to how our mind reacts to it. And when I said that pain and pleasure are inevitable but suffering and happiness are optional, this is the point that I'm getting at here. That physical pain, the unpleasantness, there's a degree of unpleasantness that is inherent in that that's inescapable. But the amount of suffering that you experience in response to it, that's optional. All of the other suffering that you experience, though, is pretty much 100% optional. <laughs> now, optional doesn't mean that you choose in the moment to experience uh, suffering or not. You experience it uh, 
to experience dissatisfaction or not. That is a result of your past conditioning. You condition yourself, you condition your mind to react in certain ways. Now you start off, you're born in a human body with a human brain, and there's a certain amount of innate programming that that we have. And over the course of a lifetime, a lot of that programming has been developed in ways that just really are not serving us. As human beings, with a human mind, we are inclined to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And you can sort of reflect on your life and see how pretty much that's the story of your whole life. And sometimes you deliberately undertook a lot of unpleasantness because of some future uh, pleasantness or happiness that you thought you were going to get as a result of it. And sometimes, or or to avoid some, some future suffering that you predicted that might come if you didn't do this unpleasant thing in the present. But nevertheless, wouldn't you agree that you can sort of understand the whole story of your life in terms of behaviors that are driven by basic desire to avoid the unpleasant and to attain the pleasant as much as possible. And this is this is what's built this is what's built into us. Why do we experience pleasure and and pleasant and unpleasant at all? Why do some things feel good and some things feel bad? Some things taste good and some things taste bad. Something smell good, something smell bad. Because what preserves the body? To preserve the body. Bad, that's right. Because it has toxins in it and stuff. And yeah. Something's good is good for you usually, except for sugar. That's right. You're by, you're genetically programmed through billions of years of evolution. You're genetically programmed to react pleasant and unpleasant to certain kinds of things in order to to preserve the body. So this mechanism of of generating negative and positive, the mind generating negative and positive feelings in order to direct behavior is inborn into us. Right? Mm. You, you follow me with that one? Yeah, because yeah, because if something hurts, like you fire, you go, ah, you know, and it's to preserve the body. And then you learn it in your mind and then you have the association with it. And then, yeah. That's right. So, you know, that's how we've become what we are. But now we come into the situation, here we are, and um, something happens, and it doesn't cause us physical pain, but it causes us mental anguish. And now that would be fine if that mental anguish, if, if that mental anguish arose and all you had to do was make a simple modification in your behavior, and then everything would be all right. But that's not the way it is. There's a lot of things. You exp- your mind generates the suffering, the unhappiness, but there's nothing you can do about the circumstances that brought it on. So you just suffer. So there's this basic mechanism that you were born with that it's no longer serving a good purpose. It's just making sure that there's a lot of unhappiness and suffering in your life. We're serving a double purpose, and that's just one aspect that's negative. And 
Hmm? It might be serving a double purpose, you know, like in another circumstance it's a good purpose, but in this circumstance it's That's not right, bad. yeah. 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 But we end up being we, we end up being basically ruled by that. So we go through our lives desiring things uh, because we think they will move, they'll make us happy, and, and we may not even consciously think that. I mean, sometimes we think that it will make us happy, and we consciously decide to pursue those things. But if you look at the course of your actions in, in your life, a lot of times it's kind of happening at a not even fully conscious level. You just, you know, you're conditioned to pursue certain kind of things because you've programmed yourself to believe that you need to pursue those kinds of things because they hold the promise of happiness. And if you examine those things closely, sometimes you'll find they don't even provide the satisfaction they used to. You just pursue them out of habit. You know, a good example of that, people smoke cigarettes, they use alcohol and other drugs, things like that. They, they overeat. Uh, in all of these sort of unhealthy behaviors, we look, they started out because they actually provided uh, a significant degree of pleasure that motivated us to engage in the activity re- uh, repeatedly. And as the satisfaction and the pleasure died away, the habit just kept mm-hmm. on going. Right? But I think some of that, and I think it's kind of related to this too, is some of that's physical. I mean, you become physically addicted. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. And so therefore when you stop, it causes a kind of pain. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a mental pain that's, that is pain. Like they say the brain doesn't experience pain because it doesn't have nerve endings, so it's not the same. But there is, I think, I swear, I felt my brain experience pain, but it's not the same experience as a physical mm-hmm. pain. But it is yeah. a pain. Well, there's no question we experience mental pain. We experience suffering. And I but it's not an inevitable suffering. That's Yeah, that's and I guess I, I guess I kind of feel, though, like, just in the interest of, partly in the interest of really understanding it and partly in the interest of not getting into this self-blaming thing, that my brain was kind of changed by a lot of traumatic experiences in a way that makes stuff like that noise more painful than it might be for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is those circuits in your brain get, you get hypersensitive basically, mm-hmm. and it gets like, it just takes a little bit of the stress chemicals to have your brain go, you know? And so I feel like, I suspect that one of the things that happens with meditation is your brain actually does change physically. It does change, absolutely. It does change physically. There's more and more, more and more scientific uh, demonstration of that in different ways. In the last few years, it's, uh, quite a few uh, different laboratories have looked at, at meditators and long-term mm-hmm. practitioners, and it definitely changes the brain. The book, Change Your Mind, Change Your Brain. It's a fascinating, it's an absolutely cool book. Yeah, it's a very good book. It summarizes a lot of that. But even that's out of, there's so much more has been done since that yeah. book was written. But anyway, you see, this, this sort of general drift of what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is that we have these mechanisms and they condition our minds. Our minds keep responding. Mm. Our behavior keeps responding. Mm. But often the initial... Uh, reason that we uh, did it is it, it's no longer serving the purpose it did originally. But I think, like in the culture, there's this tendency to think if it's in your mind, then you should just be able to like. 
it well, eventually just snap out of it. And that isn't really true. I mean, you can change, but it's not like this yeah. instant process that all. That's totally false, and that kind of goes back to what I was talking about before we sat. You know, this illusion we have about our mind, it's my mind. Well, ha! Huh. <laughs> it's yours because you're stuck with it. That's all. <laughs> you can't take it back to the store, but other than that... <laughs> <laughs> the amount of control you have over your mind is very, very little. You know, I, I, fortunately, you do have some control, and that's the reason why that you can, you can change your mind and your brain and your life and your state of happiness. But um, they, yeah, as you say, they, oh, somebody says, "Oh, it's all in your mind," as if you're going to instantly change that. Well, it doesn't happen like that. Yeah. You know, so. It's like you're grieving because somebody you love has died. Well, you know, get over it. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way. You spent how many decades developing the attachment, yeah, and that's wired into your brain. Now they're gone. That hurts, you know, and mm-hmm. takes a while for the brain to to, to rewire. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so in the case of a, of an individual who is awakened. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is a question that arises for me all the time. Um, and they lose someone. Mm-hmm. I think of of me losing my son. Is there no suffering? I mean, it's like impossible to conceive for me. Mm-hmm. It's impossible for you to conceive of having no suffering. But do you equate no suffering with not caring? No, no, I, I just, what I see is no suffering as, you know, if I were to lose my son, mm-hmm. not feeling that intense pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, would an awakened being not feel that intense pain? It, it would seem almost inhuman <laughs> that, it, that, it, that it didn't happen. Well, in, in, in a sense, it's inhuman. Uh, because an, an awakened being, you know, when... Uh, when the Buddha was asked who he was, there was a, a, a Brahmin named Donna who uh, saw him and was uh, struck by you know the remarkable uh, peace and clarity that he saw in his face and, uh, and the dignity and everything. And he uh, asked him, he said, what are you, sir? Are you a god? You know, are you... Uh, are you uh, he went through a list of various supernatural beings, and each one, Buddha said no. He said, are you human? He said, no. <laughs> and then he said, okay, so what are you then? He said, I'm awakened. <laughs> so in a, sense, in a sense, an awakened being is inhuman in that there's a certain kind of suffering that they are no longer subject to. Now, I know that's difficult to understand. You don't need to understand it, maybe to recognize a positive benefit that it would be for you, because you look at, if your son died tomorrow, the weeks and months of suffering that might follow, the fact that you're, I I, I don't I assume you're married, that you're in... uh, Something like two-thirds of the cases, the marriage doesn't survive the death of a child, and things like that. All of the t- Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if that were to happen, if you were not to have to endure all that? 
You don't need to really understand it, but let's make a comparison with something. Okay, when you're 10 years old, if your mother dies, it is very traumatic. For that matter, if you're 20 years old and your mother dies, it's very traumatic. But if you're 70 years old and your mother is 90, and you've seen this coming for a long time, you'll, you'll, you'll miss her, you love her, but you can accept this as something that has to happen, that's timely, that so on and so forth. Does that at least give you a little bit of perspective on it? Yeah. it, it and it's not that you, it's not that all of us who watch our elderly parents die are inhuman, but <laughs> we're able to accept it. And what's happening in our minds and our hearts as in response to it doesn't tear us apart and destroy the rest of our lives. And that's really that's really what we're talking about there. Does that help? So, so, so that it, so that if, um, so an awakened being would see the death of a child in the same manner. In the same manner, Mm -hmm. would see that this is part of the whole process of of life and death in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to say that um, many years ago. Um, there were a group of us, this was when I lived in Colorado, and Zatroje Rinpoche, who now lives in Phoenix, would come up once a month or once every couple of months. And somebody asked him the question about mourning and grieving and things like that. And he gave the example of when he was a, a relatively young boy and he was living in a monastery in India, I think he was, and his father died. And he felt uh, very sad, and he said he cried, and he he grieved for three days, and then he remembered what he was supposed to do was say the prayers to help his father through the bardo, and so he did that, and he so 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 he said, so you should grieve for about three days, and we were just like all of us were just like, <laughs> you know. Because it's like our whole culture, we grieve and grieve and grieve and we never get it done because we've never done it. You know, we've never done the work that grieving requires. And so it gets built up over generations and generations. And I know I've got a whole bunch of Irish ancestors and what they do is they drink instead of grieving. You know, that's what they do because the pain gets built up. And so they kill it that way. Uh-uh. You know, a lot of people do that. Because we don't know how. We've lost the... My mother just recently died. And so, it's like, okay, um, you know what's going on with me? She died like January 30th. And I'm aware that on some level, there's just not enough, as much energy as there usually is in my life in any Mm -hmm. given day. And... All I can think of is that's going towards grieving, but there's no active process except when I sit to meditate, I send her metta, um, you know, I'll do the metta sutta or you know something like that to send send her way, and you know at the same time, and then we're we're going to have a ceremony in the summer for all the relatives, but 
You know, there is a period after a person dies, even if they're old, and she was old, and it was all expected and everything, where you need to have a little special space. I don't know what it is. In Europe um, and many countries, they wear a black armband to show they're in mourning. And when somebody's in mourning, you give them a little extra consideration. You know, that's just that sign that there's a process happening. For all human beings, For as long as you're still human, uh, yeah, you're, there's going to be, to a greater or less degree, some grieving. And, and the, the example that I was giving of the different reaction you would have when, when an older parent dies, it was just sort of pointing in a general direction. And that general direction is you have a different understanding, quite a different understanding than would arise in your mind if, if, if your son died. You know, mm-hmm. it's a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, an awakened being sees everything in a totally different way than we normally do. And that's what makes the difference, is seeing things in a completely different way. As a matter of fact, it, it is said that You know, the, the word chitta means like mind stuff. Or, or, uh, yeah, uh, and one way that it's used is referred to a kind of uh, uh, consciousness that arises. You know, desire is a kind of consciousness, and hatred is a kind of consciousness, and there's all, many different kinds of consciousnesses that are technically identified in Buddhist philosophy. And amongst those, there is one citta that's called the smile-producing citta. It is only experienced by Buddhas, and it is the smile-producing citta that arises when a Buddha observes the suffering of the world. And it's it's the smile-producing citta arises because the Buddha understands things in a way so that rather than experiencing uh, the uh, karmic suffering that uh, a non-awakened person was, would, would, there is this smile-producing citta that understands things in the way they really are. And your reaction to an aging parent dying, it's not the same as the smile-producing cheetah, but at least you can see it comes from a different degree of understanding and acceptance than, than the kind that causes us the great grief. Just to continue, though, on this, see if I see if I can get back to anger here. We'll <laughs> <laughs> make it tonight. We'll make it another. Yeah, but but we've been on the way to that. Okay. With we can see how we have these patterns of behavior that uh, they come out of a, a, a certain innate predisposition that we start with, and then it gets reinforced through our experience in the course of our life and they get, stro- they get stronger and stronger. The same thing is true of the negative ones. You know, 
which impatience and anger and irritation and all of those things uh, fit into. The purpose that they can serve to the degree that they are valuable is that something happens and this let's just call it aversion to encompass all encompass all of the different degrees, everything from rage and hatred to irritability and impatience and everything in between. That that aversion arises and it produces a motivation to act in such a way that if we can, we either eliminate the cause of that aversion or remove ourselves from the circumstances that create that. Right? So it starts out as being something that has a purpose. Um, But if we look at what happens in our lives, out of all the times that you've gotten angry in the last year, say, how many of those times has it served a useful purpose? I mean, as a mature, adult, intelligent human being, you probably don't need aversive emotions to tell you when there's a situation that you need to change or remove yourself from, right? And the emotions that arise, how much help have they been? Well, one thing is, if something was happening to you that was unpleasant, you have the unpleasantness of that, and then you have this aversive emotion that arises, and it just adds more unpleasantness, which you don't need. But if you look at all the times that you have experienced anger in the last year, recognizing how many of those times it didn't really help, how many times has it harmed? How many times has it caused you to do or say something that has caused suffering to someone else and then in turn brought brought more suffering on you in the future in one form or another? Holy cow, it's starting to look not very good, right? You know. Um, Not only that, even when you don't do or say something, have you ever been eaten up by your own anger? You can't sleep. Uh, You can't enjoy the food that you're eating. Uh, It it doesn't feel good. It feels feels very bad, actually, to be angry. You sit down and you try to meditate. Instead of having a beautiful, calm, blissful meditation, you just sit there and rerun the story about your anger. You know? So we have all of these different kinds of... uh, emotional, these mental states, these emotional states that arise that are unpleasant, dissatisfying, sometimes just plain miserable. Uh, They cause us to act, often cause us to act in ways that are not useful. But you can't just turn them off. They're real when they happen. When you experience, when you get angry, you're angry. What you have to understand about this is that you're angry because you have conditioned yourself to be angry. Which isn't to mean now you should get angry at yourself because it's your fault. (laughs) 
But the important point about this is that if you've conditioned yourself to react with anger, you can condition yourself to react in a different way. You can condition yourself to cease reacting with anger, and you can condition yourself to react in a different way. That's what's really important. Now, if we look at anger specifically, see, this applies to everything. As a matter of fact, what you want to do, ultimately, is to look in your life at all of the emotions and actions that arise out of desire and aversion and ignorance and see how they keep you from being happy, cause you to be unhappy, uh, cause you to do unwholesome things and, and create uh, create suffering for yourself and for others. So that's what you ultimately want to do, is to recognize all of those and deal with all of those and eliminate with all of those. But how can you start right now, in this moment, work on, on just one of them? Start with one and then move to another and another and another. And anger is an example. It's a very good example of one. The whole secret is understanding that the anger you feel, this is an emotional state your mind has generated because it's been programmed when certain kinds of circumstances arise to generate that emotional state. The way that you change it, you you can't banish it, you can't crush it, you can't you can for a moment or two uh, maybe pretend it's not there, but mm-hmm. it doesn't last very long. It's not very it's not a very successful strategy at all. What you can do, though, that will work, that will be successful, is to observe it very clearly and objectively. Mm-hmm. So that when anger is arising, you can recognize it not as I am angry, but as anger is arising. My mind is entering into this mental state due to causes and conditions, and accept it. By accept it, I I mean not, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and beat this guy up, or (laughs) smash the window, or throw the teapot, or something. I don't mean that. I mean, accept it in the fact that, well, yeah, of course I'm angry, because I have accumulated the kind of conditioning that causes my mind to do this. Observe the anger. Observe... How it makes you feel. That's the most important thing. How does it make you feel in your body? The tightness, the tension, the pain, the burning, you know, the uncomfort. And don't do what you usually do. You get angry and you feel the burning in your face and whatever, and you quickly kind of distract yourself from that to, to something else. Really look at it, really observe it. Let it soak into that deeper unconscious level of your psyche that. This is what being angry feels like. That's not very good. You know, and, and notice how it makes your it inflames your mind and observe that. And let that knowledge and understanding soak in as well. And if you find yourself doing and saying things that, that you can't restrain yourself from, and that's the thing with anger, they're like that. You've already said it. 
That tells you something. You didn't think to yourself, oh, I'm going to make this nasty remark. It just, it was there, and you're looking at it after the fact. That tells you, it's this is something that's coming from the unconscious program level of your mind. If whatever you do as a result of anger, observe it honestly. Don't avoid it. Don't turn away from it. Put the full power of your mindfulness to see what you're doing, what effect it has, what effect it has on you, what effect it has on other people. Just let that information sort of seep in. Now, often you can't remember to do this when you're angry. So your starting point is you're going to have to do it sometimes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and depending on how strong your anger is, it might be quite a while afterwards before you have the coolness of mind to objectively examine and reflect on that. But you work towards doing it when it happens. This is all you have to do. It will change, your mind will change if you practice mindfulness of unwholesome mental states when they arise. And if you allow yourself to observe the feelings they produce, both mental and physical, the actions they result in, the consequences of those actions, etc. Just observing, just mindful observer. Let that information soak in and it will produce a change. You will. And, and the thing is that even if you spent 40 years conditioning yourself to be a person who flares up in anger, you can, in much, much less time than that, condition yourself to be a person who doesn't get angry, who responds. The thing is that you, as you begin diminishing the strength of the aversive mental states that arise, you can start replacing them with more wholesome ones. And the wholesome counterparts are patience, loving kindness, and compassion. There's annoying, what was it, music? Yeah. Patient. There's somebody who's playing that music. Uh, There can be understanding and compassion. You know, Mm -hmm. so you can eventually... And it doesn't mean that you won't still make changes, the changes that you can to Mm -hmm. remove the noxious influence or to remove yourself from the noxious influence. You'll still do those, but you're already able to do those things. All you will have done is removed this very unpleasant and problem-causing mental and emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. So like if I go home and he's still blasting it and it's 11 o'clock and I call the cops on him, it'll be from a different perspective. Because <laughs> right. if he's still blasting at 11 o'clock, I'm probably going to call the cops on him. <laughs> you know, and that, I, I think uh, that's probably exactly the right thing to do. I mean, you, when we live in a yeah, city and then the city ordinances and your taxes go to hire a police department and everything else, that's why it exists is so that, you know, the police can come knock on the door and say, sorry to bother you, but your neighbor called us and your music's too loud. You know, yeah. so good, by all means. Oh, but you yeah. don't have to feel angry when you <laughs> do it. And you don't have to feel miserable. As a matter of fact, you can feel compassionate and uh, uh, forgiving <laughs> and all kinds of other good feelings. You know? 
So it's kind of interesting because I feel in some ways like you were saying something that I already thought because it isn't really about changing those emotions, it's more about your relationship to them. In the meantime, anyways, perhaps in some future state it changes, but I kind of still have a hard time imagining that one could survive without negative emotions in some form, quote-unquote negative emotions in some form or other. As a motive force or a noticer. I mean, I don't mean that you have to get like all freaked out, but that you might be like, whoa, you know, you hear something and it startles you and you get that feeling that you would call fear, you know? Or something happens and you feel really sad and then you're like, well, I need to do something about this kid that's being treated badly or something. You know, I still feel like on some level, I don't know how one could live without those in some way, I mean, I agree that they could be transformed, but mm-hmm. I just feel like in some way I don't know how one could live without those kinds of feelings. Well, that's all right. It's like the smile-producing cheetah. You don't have to be able to understand how it, how it can be. But the thing is, if you can see how your life would be a lot better if uh, you could greatly diminish the intensity of those aversive emotional responses, then if that's clear to you, then go for that. And then... You know. Well, this is more like it's just a question of observation and how one relates to them, you know, rather than directly trying to, like, turn the volume down. Although I've heard of people that actually do, like, visualize, like, you know, turning the volume down and stuff, but I don't know. Well, one of the things that we could get into on another occasion, um, we sustain our sense of self-identity through these kinds of strong emotions. And if you reflect on how you felt when you've gotten angry, and if you reflect on sometimes when you are feeling uh, inadequate, uh, powerless, uh, something like that, if, if, you, if your self-esteem is low, and that you've actually made yourself angry as a way of getting over that and getting beyond that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and uh, even if you can't recall doing that, and even if you've never done that deliberately, you've done that unconsciously mm-hmm. many times in your life. Uh, and this is this is part of the problem of is that. There is a, this connection between desire and aversion, and the uh, the attachment to this sense of self and the I-ness and it and, 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 and being a and being a strong I. These are very much interconnected, and it's a very unwholesome way to support that sense of I and self-worth and, pa- and personal power. Uh, through desire and aversion, but we do that. Mm-hmm. We do that. And so this is one of the things that you will need to watch out for. And uh, it, as you start working with desire and aversion, that will start to be exposed. And when the Buddha said that suffering is caused by craving, and craving includes both desire and aversion, and that the, the cra- craving depends upon this attachment to the self in order to occur. This is the connection there. So the only way that you can awaken is to get over this attachment to the self. And the only way you can overcome suffering 
is to get over the craving that depends upon this attachment to the idea of self. So that's that's the way these are connected. So as soon as you start trying to work on your on your anger, you're practicing dharma, and you're practicing in a dharma in a way that will eventually lead to overcoming the attachment to the self and creating the uh, uh, insights that you need for awakening. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 not like dealing with anger and. and and desire and other unwholesome mental states is this other thing that you can do. It's very much a part of it. It's very much an important, essential part of it. Yeah, yeah I was thinking of how, when you said that, how as a child I got angry, it was a way to not feel like totally powerless and destroyed. Yeah, right. And at the time it was preferable because I think it let me keep this feeling of ability to do something, you know what I mean, of the ability yeah. to act and stuff, and so, I don't know, it's just worth, I think, like, examining <coughs> and seeing all the roots and where do they come from, because I think it's really easy to judge instead of understand. That's right, it's so easy to judge instead of understand, and, uh, but the thing is, <coughs> the mature, healthy person that you are today doesn't need anger to achieve Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Which mature and healthy person? <laughs> anyway. So, I thought that was a pretty good discussion. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Yeah. Hope I talked to you. And, uh, yeah. we'll see you next Thursday. <laughs>